Morning, church. Uh, that was a rousing response. These fellows are going to bring my tools. Set them right down here for me. And uh, what you see on this table coming down shows the difference between what a young man needs to preach and what an old guy needs to preach. All Brad needs is a Bible and a little stool for his cup of tea, and away he goes. Me, you've, you folks are getting to know me now, and uh, I've graduated from just a cup of cold water to I now have a straw. I have this natural growing tremor, and I try to control it, but uh, a few months ago when I preached, I took a gulp, and the ice and the water was going everywhere. You wouldn't dare sit there, Brandy, if... Uh, that was happening. So we're graduated to a straw. And I also took my tremor meds before I came. So I'm solid as a, solid as a rock. <laughs> anyway, it's enjoyable to keep doing what you can do for as long as you can do it. So I want to thank Brandy. She's the lady that puts these beautiful worship folders together every week. And I know you're shaking your head, Brandy, and looking at the floor. But would you stand up so we know who you are? <laughs> Michael needs to see you afterwards, and he wanted me to point you out. So, But that's a wonderful opportunity to say thanks. And without us talking, she may have gotten the word some other way, she picked a perfect scripture from 1 John, and we're going to actually be covering 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John this morning. So I want to start with reading the scripture that she chose for us here. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Is that not absolutely amazing? Just a review. For quite some time now, Brad has been walking us through the book of Romans. And one of the strongest messages that keeps coming out is, in relation to our salvation... We can do absolutely nothing. He was here in the first service and he appreciated the review. So uh, here we go. First, second, and third John. Last week, Chris, I know you're here. I saw you coming. There you are. Thank you for that beautiful message you delivered last week. Thank you for that picture of how you develop a message. I'm going to take part of that because I bit off more than I can chew. I'm going to stay up at about 30,000 feet and give you the bigger overview. And you're going to, after about an hour, hour and a half, you're going to say, John, you, you keep going. You've got three points here and four here and whatever. And that's because from 30,000 feet, I can say, yep, there's three things down there. You see those? And look at those four things over there. We, we, we need to note those. So that's why it may 
come across as a 30 points or something. But anyway, an overview of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I chose 1st John 2.1 as the uh, key verse for these entire three books. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. He's not saying, and we'll cover this in a little more depth later, uh, you become a Christian, you won't sin anymore, guaranteed. Or he's not saying, but you become a believer and you can't sin anymore, don't worry about it. He's not saying that. He wants us to get the teaching so it's drilled into our hearts and into our minds that we need to not sin. There's no reason to keep sinning. In fact, every reason to bring sin to a halt. It's important for us to note here that John is dealing with the sin in the church, not the world. It is so easy for us to come inside this building or step inside of any of the other 250 or 300 churches in the city or any church in America and sit down and say, ah, gathering of the good people, and then all those sinners out there. Some of the hardest teachings of Scripture are not aimed at the world, but at those who profess to be believers. And we'll see a bit of that today. These are difficult times for the New Testament church. You know, Jesus has left them. He's gone to be with his Father in heaven. Of course, he has sent his Holy Spirit. And uh, many in the church have been scattered. They're being moved all throughout the known world. And there are not easy times. As Paul said in the book of Acts, I believe it's the 20th chapter, he said, I'm here to warn you... uh, Yes, he's warning the Ephesian elders. I'm here to warn you that after I leave, savage wolves will rise up even within the church body. They will bring false teaching. They are meaning to bring the church down. You must stand against that. You must protect them. Perhaps John is functioning here in these three books as a man of Issachar. Now, you've heard us talk about the men of Issachar before. I'll repeat it again if you haven't been here. Uh, An obscure little group of people in the Old Testament. As as David was uh, putting together the army after Saul kind of decimated things, all these large groups of warriors came, you know, 10,000, 5,000 of these guys, 30,000 warriors there. And then there's one verse that says, And the men of Issachar, 200 chieftains, and their families, and here's the key to being a man of Issachar. They understood the times, and they knew what to do. I don't think they were just born with this capability. I believe it was a pattern of living in that tribe so closely to God that God showed them what was going on in the world And he also told them what Israel needed to do. Isn't that amazing? What if we had men of Issachar with us today? 
even women of Issachar. I don't think we have to rule out women. Why couldn't a woman live so closely to the Lord Jesus Christ that we would hear, that you, she would hear him, she would understand the times and know what to do? I don't think that's necessarily relegated just to men. In a reality, we also live in some very difficult times. I don't know if you looked at the news today or yesterday or last week. It's changing, but it's not getting better. It's just getting uglier and uglier. More of that in a few minutes. We do live in terrible times, and I believe they're the times talked about in 2 Timothy 3.1. In the end, towards the end, there will be Terrible times, it says, in the last day. Could it be said that in these times we also need men of Issachar or men of, and women of Issachar? Having these kind of people who are astute and aware and alert seems like a wonderful thing. Think of the trouble that we could save ourselves. But do we really want to hear precisely from God? You know, there's a risk, there's a danger there. Honestly, I personally enjoy hearing from God when He's in line with my thinking. You ever find yourself there? Easy to listen to Him, isn't it? Oh, Lord, please tell me, and I hope you tell me this. Uh, That's not the way that God works. But when he has a different direction for me, my hearing gets poor. It's not good at all. <clears throat> Did it. Many years ago, in the early part of the history of our country, when we were at uh, war with Great Britain, Revolutionary War, there was a man named Thomas Paine who came over from Britain and uh, I think trying to find a life. He also had a cause that he wanted to live for. He tried to be a a soldier. He joined the military and it did not work out for him. And, And so he continued to work with his pen and he penned a number of uh, brochure, little booklet things uh, with a major focus in each one of these. And one of them that he wrote was common sense. The first line of common sense is, these are the times that try men's souls. You may remember it from history in school. Thomas Paine. Kind of a rallying cry. He was this political journalist and he had a tremendous effect. But we need to ask the question, might this also be applicable to today? Are these... The times that try men's souls. We need to look at two words here. Try and souls. Is he talking about our soul that will eventually go to heaven? And I don't think so. In fact, he doesn't even claim to be a Christian. In fact, he did some writing that would suggest he's anti-Christian. Now, I don't think, as some suspect, that he was an atheist. Because he did believe in God. But he did not believe 
in Christ. So what does he mean by soul? I think he's talking about the deepest, most heartfelt issues in our life. And we all have them. And to try our souls, I think he means to test or to seriously challenge those things that have deep meaning and deep consequences in our life. In our case, the challenge is to, is to everything that is meaningful for our physical well-being. Here's some examples. Freedom. Our constitution. Control of our own existence. Every one of these things is being challenged in our time. If we have been looking closely, we, we start to think, this is being turned upside down. It makes no sense. What is going on? There seems to be no sense to the controls put upon us. What we eat, use of our natural resources, and that gets close to home here in Alaska, doesn't it? Our health care, we won't even go there. Even coercion to think in specific ways. Now let me make this very clear. I'm not talking about politics and the right and the left. Put aside those things. It's still a mess for all of us. Another area, lack of objectivity. It used to be, when I was a kid, you could turn on the radio and you could hear the news and you could trust it. Such a lack of objectivity today that in the, in the information we are given, news is no longer news, but nonstop editorializing. And in case you hadn't noticed... We're not about to lose our privacy here in America. We have lost it. <clears throat> Telephones, cell phones, emails, Skype, Twitter, and Facebook are all monitored, cataloged, and stored. There's hardly a place we go now without video surveillance. Someone somewhere has a file on almost everything we purchased and every move we make. Did you happen to go to Costco yesterday? Spend a little money? They know it. And they know what you bought. The challenge is not limited to our physical well-being. Our beliefs as Christians are considered hateful. Our moral convictions are viewed as intolerant. Our steadfast hold to family is laughed and sneered at. Every effort is being made to teach our children the ways of the world. I don't know that we can change this, but to protect and take responsibility for our own is going to take a concerted effort. No longer can we stand by and hope that something good turns all this around. These truly are the times that try men's souls. So, okay, here's where we're going in the next few minutes. One, we're going to look at the ramifications of sin. Two, we're going to try to fortify our stand against sin from Scripture. And thirdly, we're going to ask the practical questions on how shall we then live in light of all of this.
Now, that's a lot to do in the next hour, hour and a half. I'm trying to get you to relax a little. So, so we will not sin. What then is sin? I grew up <clears throat> looking primarily at an Old Testament verse that said, sin is the transgression of the law. That's the easy way to look at it. And in reality, it's the easy way out. Show me the law, and I'll stay away from stepping over the line. That is not the whole story. As I grew a little bit older, I started looking at the New Testament and hearing good teaching. We started to realize that sin is missing the mark. Lord Jesus sets the mark for us and says, go for it. And then it's ours to hit. Or also, we need to be aware that sin is hitting the wrong mark. With good intentions, we may say, well, I, well here's, here's one. It just occurred to me. Uh, we say, I want my kids to have a better life than I had. I suffered when I was a kid. And I don't want my kids to suffer. I want them to make a little more money than I do, do, and I want them to live a better life. Sounds like a good mark to shoot for. But in fact, if we hit that mark, it's probably the wrong mark because it'll have negative effects. I had a very practical ex uh, experience in hitting the wrong mark a couple of years ago without shooting alone. I mean, amongst several other men at Rabbit Creek Shooting Range. And uh, about 10 of us went out and set up our targets. And then we went and got set, settled in. And range master said, range is hot. And so I took careful aim and I shot and I grabbed my binoculars and I looked and nothing on my whole target. I totally missed it. Then I went... Uh-oh, I hit the guy's target next to mine. I had good intentions. I meant to hit my target. I thought I was aimed at, at my target, but I wasn't. He had two holes in his, and we'd each only shot once. His was very close to dead on center. Mine barely hit his, but I was way off. I not only missed the mark, I had missed the target. Other examples of sin, selling out to the world. Now, who in the world would do that? Sounds like a ridiculous thing to do. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Ah, my dad's got lots of dough. If I could just get my hands on what I rightfully deserve, and I could get out of here, get out of this controlling family environment, hit the road and start enjoying life in the world, uh, wouldn't things be great? We know what happened. He soon ran out of money, soon end up in a pigsty, which is a pretty good term for the type of life he'd been living in immorality and all kinds of places and things he shouldn't have been in. That's selling out to the world. 
Believing a lie is also sin. Who were the first ones to believe a lie? The first people. Adam and Eve. Now, God had said, this is for you. I have built, I have uh, created this wonderful garden. And uh, you just settle in and enjoy it. The work will be wonderful. In fact, I'm going to come by every day, maybe in the cool evening. We'll walk and talk. We'll deal with life and everything will be wonderful. So probably the next day, God was off doing what God does when he's not right there talking to us. And along comes the enemy, Satan, the tempter, the father of lies. And he starts to question what God said. Now, time out here. Don't we hear a lot of that coming at us from the world? That really doesn't make sense now, does it? Oh, I'm sure that you could do something a little bit differently. and You'd uh, enjoy life a lot more. But leaving a lie is sin. To know good and not to do it is also sin. Remember the story of the priest and the Levite? No, you don't remember, probably, because we don't focus on the priest and the Levite. We focus on the Good Samaritan. He did the right thing. A man was traveling down this roadway, and robbers came upon him and beat him nearly to death and stole all the value that he had and left him to die. Along comes a priest who should know better. Makes a wide berth around, keeps going. Along comes a Levite. He does the very same thing. And it's looking like the man is actually going to die when along comes the good Samaritan. And he does what we need to do. The good thing, the right thing. Even if it's not within kind of the practices of my people, if it is the right thing, it's the right thing. To not do the right thing is sin. Living with a serious lack of faith is also sin. In other words, not believing God. Remember the story of the Israelites when they're about to go into the promised land. And God specifically says, I am going to give you this land. It will be yours. Now, you need to send some men in there to check this place out, to get the facts, see what it's, what's going on there so you know what you're up against. They sent 12 spies in. They found some wonderful food, some amazing resources. They've called it the land flowing with milk and honey, and they brought back such a giant bunch of grapes. They had to put it up, hang it from a pole between two men. But the men in there, the the warriors, were all so big. Ten of the spies came back and said, they're giants. There's no way. We can't do it. Basically, what they're saying is, we don't really care what God said. We don't care what he's given us. We don't care what his promise is. We can see what we can see, and we don't want anything to do with it. Lack of faith. Now, there were two men, godly men, Joshua and Caleb, who took the other side and said, no, God has promised. We've seen it. We know with God leading us, 
we can do what he says to do. Taking no stand at all against the resources, the, excuse me, against the presence of evil is also sin. In other words, teaching, false teaching in the church, immorality in the church, and as we see in 1 Timothy 3, 5, having the form of godliness. You know what a form of godliness is? Looking good. Having the form of godliness, but denying its power. That is also sin. Avoiding the realities of evil is what it is. And I probably do that more off, most often because if I do recognize there is evil present, then I might have to do something about it. These are sin. Okay, quickly, the reality of sin. I see three of them right down there from 30,000 feet. Sin separates us from God. Look what happened to Adam and Eve. Did those lovely walks in the cool of the evening continue after they denied God and sinned? Absolutely not. Sin will always separate us from God. And that's a separation we do not want. Another reality. Calculated habitual sin causes God to hide his face from us. Isn't that an amazing concept? God doesn't even want to look at me. He hides his face from us. Okay, you say, John, where did this take place? At least once, if not more times in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew people would get buried in sin, practicing sin, going against God's directives for them, then God would come to them, usually through a prophet, get the message clear to them, and they'd feel all bad, probably shed some tears, and then they'd do the repentance, you know, the about face, turn around and go the other way and say, okay, God, we won't do that anymore. If you've raised children, you've seen that often. Before long, slipping back into it. And sometimes if you read considerable portions of Old Testament Scripture, you, you see it going like this, up and down, up and down, up and down. And finally, God says, enough! I can't stand it anymore. Calculated habitual sin causes God to hide his face from us. And another reality of sin is sin costs God a horrendous act of sacrifice to bring us back to him. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was no small thing just to say, okay, that's okay, come on back. When we sin, God does not look lightly upon sin. It took a horrendous act of Jesus to bring us back. So when we continue to sin, we're saying, oh God, I, I like this idea that you sacrificed your son for me. Thank you very much. No. Why would we want to continue 
to repetitive sin. All three books of John deal with the presence of sin in the church. Now let's keep in mind, John's warnings and teachings are sent to the church, not to the world. Here are the specifics of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. These are the sins. It's interesting. 1st John, the largest of uh, the long, longest of uh, the three books, had false teaching running rampant. Two terms that I know that you've heard before. Antinomianism. I see any smiles. You heard Brad use the term antinomianism. The belief that the gospel frees Christians from any need for obedience. Don't worry about it. That's the false teaching. It's a free gift. And the other one is perfectionism. The belief that the gospel removes the sin nature from the believer. Therefore, I can't sin. In the light of the truth of the gospel, that is all hogwash. There is no evidence that antinomianism or perfectionism are the teaching. They are absolutely wrong. So that's what John is dealing with in 1 John. In 2 John, he's dealing with Gnostic heresy. Gnostic, it's kind of a fancy word for high-headedness. I'm a learned person. I have studied, therefore I know. But the one thing that they denied, the Gnostics, was that Jesus had come in the flesh. They were too intellectual for that. Paul warns of this in in, uh, 1 Timothy 6.20, and I want to read that to you. 1 Timothy 6.20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. We need to know. We need to study. But to stop simply short and focus only on knowledge is to miss the mark. Then there's Third John. Dealing with one troublesome man, named Diotrephes. He was a self-appointed, domineering man with the need to be important. Oh, I hate to hold that mirror up to myself because there have been times in my life where I know, if I am honest with myself, I had a need to be important. But Diotrephes could not be silenced. He was a gossip. He would deny hospitality to those workers, those teachers that John would send to the church. And he exercises self-proclaimed authority over whom he wished, even putting them out of the church. Okay. Halftime. Don't go anywhere. But you get to stretch. 
We're going to read uh, the second chapter of 1 John, and I want to invite you to stand while we read it. Let's do that. Now, this is an Old Testament practice, and we're not trying to go back to old legalistic ways. For one thing, back then they didn't have a lot of scriptures. Every home didn't have a Bible. Very few, probably no homes had a Bible. It was also a way of honoring the Word of God. So we're going to take about four or five minutes here and read through 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his words, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because of the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of the eyes and the boasting of what he he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Just a brief time out here. We have 
so many facts that show us that too many going out from us become lost. And I see that. We see that right here. It's evident that they never belonged to him. Proceeding on from 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may, con- we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what he is, what is right, has been born of him. You may be seated. All right, fortifying our stand against sin. Quickly. John's reason for writing so that we will not sin. Here's how we take our stand. First, there's the matter of togetherness. The body of Christ is meant to be together. The word used most often in regard to this is fellowship. We know that the early church enjoyed true fellowship amongst themselves. I grew up with the understanding, the assumption that fellowship happened every Sunday night after the evening service. We always went to somebody's house for pie and coffee. I wasn't much of a coffee drinker when I was a kid, but I sure loved the pie. Bring on the fellowship. Well, I think that is kind of a low-level early stage of fellowship. But true fellowship means having all things in common. A very difficult thing to do if we put our two services together and assume we had maybe 500 people. How do we have true fellowship with that whole large body of people? We know on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to the church that day. You think they all had true fellowship together? I don't think so, but they met in homes, plural, life groups. Right, Darren? There's our man. The leadership of this church is giving a lot of focus now to 
pushing, raising the bar, moving into small groups of maybe five to seven households who will actually focus on understanding Scripture and living out the truth of Scripture in that small group. It doesn't take away from anything we do here on Sunday mornings, but it adds to our experience in the body as the living body, as the fellowshipping body. It's tough to do in our society. Our society says, no, be independent, be strong. You don't need other people. You don't need a life group. That's not what Scripture teaches. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. Fellowship. We have fellowship with, with each other and with the Father and with the Son. To save a little time, I won't read those Scriptures, but just read through 1 John. You'll see. If we have fellowship with each other and we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Can you imagine... All things in common with each other. Yeah, I can understand that. Sounds good. We can work it out with other humans. But we're on that level with God, the Father, and God, the Son, as well. All things in common. Amazing. When we deny the true fellowship, we turn our back on the fellowship with the Father and the Son as well. 1 John 1, 5-7 True fellowship, if we walk in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. What's the light? Right here. It's right here. The truth of Scripture is the light. We ever found ourselves just in a deep bunch of muck? Maybe you haven't, but I have. And most often... I find myself there because I'm not walking in the truth of the Scripture. I'm not walking in the light. 1 John 3, 11 to 20. We are called to lay down our lives for one another. Is this not, in fact, the truest form of fellowship, of having all things in common? If your needs would call for me to sacrifice my life. What an amazing relationship we would have. Then there's this matter of obedience. That's a tough one. Our culture doesn't teach us to obey finds ways around us, everything that we would normally have felt should be a norm. It doesn't teach our children to obey. Little respect, no obeying. We tend to think that obeying might be legalistic. 1 John 2, 3-6 says, Obey my commandments. In chapter 5, 3, if we love him, we will obey him. Imagine telling your mom or your dad, I really love you. I'm sorry, I'm going to be obedient tonight. I mean, disobedient tonight, excuse me. It doesn't make any sense. 
if we love him, we will obey him. When we don't obey, the fact is we aren't loving him. Then there's the matter of control. Asking the question, who is in control? And you're asking me, what are you talking about? What are you talking about, who's in control? Let me start painting the picture a little bit by saying, have you ever walked in someone's home that looked like a bomb went off? And there's probably some kids crying and maybe some parents screaming at each other. Someone running out the door and slamming it. You know, there might be something cooking on the stove and it's boiling over. Don't you just want to say, who in the world's in charge here? That's the question I think a lot of us are asking about this world that we're in right now. It's amazing. Look what's going on in Europe and throughout America. Anyway... Question is, who is in control? 1 John 5, 18 and 19, we must read that. It's very obvious. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safely, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Why is the house a wreck? Why are people screaming at each other? Why are economies falling apart? Why is morality going down the tubes? Because you know who's in charge. The whole world is under control of the evil one. 1 John 2, 15, 17 says, Do not love the world. When we first started going to Africa on summer mission assignments, one of the first things that people told us is that Africans, they have a very difficult time telling Christians apart from non-Christians. Oh, that hurt. Then we had a couple of children of Uh, Some African friends come here and go to college and they spent Christmas with us. And they said that was the hardest part for them to go to a university. They knew there were Christians there, but they didn't know who who they were. Is it because we have become so much like the world because we are in love with the world? 2 John 7, 11, do not lose what you have worked for. It's not worth it. And 3 John 11, do not imitate evil. And that is so easy to do. The television, the internet, every bit form of advertising is selling us the world. And they will use evil if they have to, and most of the time they think they do. Okay, number three here, raising the practical questions. How shall we then live? 
It's one thing to think good thoughts, to think truth, to know the right answers, then pack up our Bibles and head out and go back to life as we know it. It's another thing to say, you know, if we're being taught truth and we're responding to God, it will change our life. It is essential to ask the practical questions. Obedience is so important. It's the demonstration or the proof of what's actually in our hearts. These truly are the times that try men's souls. Can we hear that challenge without rising up with a response? Three points to consider in these times. One, we must stand together, and I've talked about that. We must pursue true fellowship, life together. It will be a protection for us. It will be a mirror for us to look into. It will be eyes and ears on God that we don't necessarily have at certain times. Secondly, men must stand up, lead, teach, mentor, train, disciple their children. This is a God-given responsibility. It's not something that we can just pass off to our wife. She is truly our helpmeet. We will work together on this. But God gives men specific responsibility here. Just a bit of an aside, we all, all ought to note that three weeks from today, Brian Molitor will be here. He is the author of three different books on mentoring our children, one on girls, actually, and then two different ones on boys. He's preaching both Sunday morning services, and then in the evening, he will be doing a short two-hour seminar, something he normally spends two to three days on here. And his message, he says, is for men, women, and children. Put that on your calendar, I believe. It's the 24th, something like that. Casual obedience turns us easily to disobedience. Together we must seek obedience with a vengeance. Why do I use such strong language? Because the enemy has used strong language. He intends to destroy us. Revelations twelve seventeen. He has declared war on us. A passive, casual, well, I'll be a nice guy, doesn't work. It doesn't cut it. We need to seek obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ with a vengeance against the evil one. Jesus, when talking about John the Baptist, when John was in prison and his disciples came to Jesus to double-check, are you really the one that you... Everyone says you are, and he says, you know, John was one of the greatest men. But since the time of John, violent, courageous men have taken hold of the church and have advanced it. 
That is precisely what he's talking about. Seek obedience with a vengeance because we do have an enemy. If these are the times that try men's souls, how then shall we live? Courageously. With great courage. Now, courage is that quality of being brave. You've got to read Deuteronomy 31, 1 to 6. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now a hundred and twenty years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said, And the Lord will do it to them what he did to Shehan and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Here it is. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Courage, bravery, because of who goes before us, because of who has provided us with every need, with the response to every need that we would have. Okay, if these, things, if these are the times that try men's souls, what must we set aside? The answer is right in front of us. It's the opposite of courage, It's cowardice. Cowardice, the lack of courage. Shamefully afraid. Revelation 21, 5 to 8. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. We must be courageous in light of Jesus and what he has done for us. We must set aside all cowardice. If these are the times that try men's souls, what must we never forget? Joshua 24, 13 to 15. 
So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away all the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Back to the realities of ownership and the question of obedience, we have a choice. Satan has temporary control over all the earth, and his intention is to take us out, to destroy us. He makes the world look awfully good, and he's hard to resist. That's choice number one. Or choice number two, do we invest everything we are and have in obedience to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that we do not sin? Please stand. Up on the screen, two lines. Let's read them together. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As we're standing, we will transition into our time of communion. I'm going to read from Matthew 19. And then the words of an old familiar hymn will be up on the screen. Some may know it. Sing out. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, which means complete. If you want to be complete, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, but because he had great wealth. Your Lord and Father of mankind. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, 
Forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in our rightful mind. In pure lies thy service find. In deeper reverence praise. God, you have been amazing. You have made us. You have allowed us to walk with you. We have sinned. And you have borne the burden of that sin through a horrendous suffering and death. And then you rose again to conquer death that we might join our Father in heaven and spend eternity worshiping you. Thank you, Lord, for your body and for your blood. And we consider your body as we partake. We are simply in awe. We have nothing to return but just ourselves as a living sacrifice. We pray that you would bless these emblems as we partake. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.